You're listening to the Scaling Culture Podcast, where we sit down with thought leaders who share their experiences building incredible workplace cultures. Our guest today is Celeste Warren, Chief Diversity and Inclusion Officer at Merck. In her 25-year career at Merck, Celeste has held numerous positions of increasing responsibility within HR and is responsible now to advance and embed diversity and inclusion throughout the organization, working with Merck's leaders. She's been honored with many awards, including Black Enterprises Top Executives in Global Diversity and Inclusion and Diversity Global Magazine's Influential Women in Global Diversity. Celeste is also a member of CNBC Workforce Executive Council and World 50's Inclusion and Diversity Impact Community. And she has her first book coming out later this year, How to Be a Diversity and Inclusion Ambassador, everyone's role in helping all feel accepted, engaged, and valued. In this episode of Scaling Culture, Ron and Celeste discuss why and how the first diversity and inclusion department at Merck came to be more than 70 years ago, the components of Merck's approach to diversity, equity, and inclusion, how to integrate diversity, equity, and inclusion into business and measure progress, and how to identify and remove biases. Before diving into today's episode, be sure to subscribe to our podcast and check out our Scaling Culture Masterclass, the eight-module playbook on how to build and sustain a high-performing team, covering all things culture, from creating and activating core values and culture-driven screening and onboarding, to building relationships, change management, and operating as a team. To learn more or purchase the Masterclass, please go to Scaling culture.org and this episode of scaling culture is sponsored by spoken now on to the show welcome to another episode of the scaling culture podcast i'm your host ron lovett and today i'm extremely excited to have celeste warren with us celeste welcome to the show thank you ron thank you for the invitation and, and you know i was excited to have you you know i was researching about you and being the vice president of the global diversity inclusion center of excellence at merck i i just thought very timely for you to be in that role and for the state of what's happening today and and diversity inclusion is is obviously a hot topic so i was i was excited even to know where your focus was in your role and that you were coming on the show so so look thanks again for joining us and i'm I'm excited to dive into a very uh very important topic well thank you it's it's uh, i'm glad you invited me and i'm always willing able and excited to talk about diversity equity and inclusion (laughs) Yeah, you know, it's it's funny. I don't know if there's like and maybe from your experience, is, has it cycled around in the workplace? Is this the first time that globally that this is on the minds of leaders and companies and, and became important? And and I feel maybe silly asking the question, but I don't know that it, it has. Is this the first time that from your experience that's like, wow, this is at the forefront? It's never it was never around. You know, we have we've had problems in society, but but from a corporate level level. Has has is this the first time this is circled around? Well, I, I I so I think I'll answer it in two ways. One, um, at Merck, we've had a diversity and inclusion um, organization within the company for over seventy years. Oh, so wow. the company is about one hundred and thirty years old, and we've had this this organization or a facsimile of uh, for decades. That being said. Um, I think what has happened, I took over this role, uh, this is my eighth year. And I remember when I first stepped into the role, I um, talked with some colleagues from other companies that were in similar roles. And I asked them, you know, how has it evolved? How has diversity and inclusion evolved over over the years, the decades? Because 
when I was starting out my career uh, or early career, I did uh, some work in diversity and inclusion and uh, with a previous company. And um, I was asking folks, like, how has it evolved? How, how have we how ha have we gotten better? Has, has it gotten um, easier for us to be mm. able to move forward? And sadly, the answer that I got from colleagues across different companies, across different industries was, well, Celeste, sometimes it just feels like we're continuing to keep fighting the fight constantly and that we haven't really, if we haven't gotten, it hasn't gotten better in, in corporations in the years that, uh, that I was doing other things per se and not focused in it. And so that was sad to me. It really was because, you know, the last time that I had been in a diversity and inclusion role was it was 17 or 18 years ago. Again, it was at a lower level, but 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 that long. And for they're not for the people that have been in the role to feel like I just don't feel like we're making a lot of progress. That was kind of disheartening. And so um, me being who I am and, and how how I'm wired, you know, I, it just became a mission for me. So. Um, what I think has happened over the last couple of years, and, and I actually, about four or five years ago, I really pay attention to global trends and what's happening from the standpoint of uh, the social aspect, the political aspect, the economic impact around the globe. And one of the things that was starting to really unfold, especially over the last three or four years, and I think what brought it on is the um, increase in the millennial generation hitting the workforce, um, their values, what they value, what they stand for, what they believe in is has really just caused corporations to really sit back and listen and try to understand because that is the growing uh, segment of the labor market. But they started to pay attention probably. And I said that there was going to be this, um, this employee awakening is what I called it over the next three or four years because um, corporations are gonna have to start to really listen to what their employees are saying. They're gonna have to start to really listen to what the labor market and what people are saying for a lot of different reasons for their business, from the standpoint of the war on talent, um, from being close to their customers and understanding what their values were. And lo and behold, you know, 2020 comes around, it becomes a whole different world for all of us with the pandemic and being shuttered in place and the, the walls going up across nations and borders being closed, corporations closing many of their doors and companies because they can't do business. And then all of us individually separating ourselves from others. And, and it, it became a time for us to just really think. And then here comes May and the death of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and all of the Ahmaud Aubrey and all of those things that were happening that just, just really um, caused us to really sit and think about it. And so, yeah, absolutely, 2020, there was this escalation. But um, there's one thing about making a moment in time versus a rising crescendo, which is what I think is happening. I don't think 2020 was a moment in time. Um, I don't think in past cases of xenophobia and homophobia and all of the things that have happened, that those are moments in time. I think we're at a place now where we're reaching a, a just an, a crescendo. It's going to continue to increase in its importance. Um, in what does crescendo mean? That just means that it's, it's coming to the forefront? It's, it is just 
crescendo like in music, like it's just going to keep rising and rising and rising and rising in importance. Okay. And I don't see it leveling off. I don't see it um, coming back down. Um, I see it continuing to rise. Well, Celeste, but you know, it's interesting. And I, I want to, there's two things that, that stuck out. I don't want to lose focus on these two points. Um, mm-hmm. One is you, you said Merck has been doing this for 70 years that, that, that they, did I hear that correctly? They've had a diverse inclusion department, individual yeah. focus. So, do you know, the history, what made them 70 years ago say, we need to focus on this. Did what, was there a moment in time? Do you know the history of, I, I'm curious, seven years, a long time ago for someone to be thinking like that. It sounds very progressive. Is there a story yeah, behind I, it? I think, um, well, historically, I think that, you know, it starts with George Merck, the founder of the company. And one of the things that he talked about in his emphasis was around the patients. And he knew that patients were came in all different sizes, shapes, colors, genders, sexual orientation, re, you know, religious background, all dimensions of diversity. And, and if you're thinking purely about the patients and you think about how how we are going to get medicines and drugs to them so they can experience the health outcomes that we want to. I think it was just from that standpoint, it was sort of just, that's the way we have to approach things. Yeah, right. Because because it's almost like people said about the virus. The virus doesn't care if you're black, white, Hispanic, mm-hmm. big, tall, what religion, right? The, you know, the, the, the pandemic, you know, the, the COVID-19 will will enter your body no matter what. And it sounds like he's taken kind of a reverse view. Hey, we're just helping human beings. Am I getting that right? That's exactly it. And, and um, you know, he he had a lot of different quotes around the patients and, and, and profits and saying, you know, we make, let's make the patient, make the products for the patients. The profits will come afterwards, but we shouldn't be thinking uh, profits first. We should be thinking patients first. And, and, and just very insightful and visionary um, for him to have that, thought process. And then fast forward a few years and, and um, someone in their infinite wisdom said, you know, we need to really make sure that we have, um, we're focused on diversity. So back then it was more your traditional, um, let's focus on representation, let's align the civil rights movements in the sixties, et cetera. Um, uh, But, but uh, it's, it's definitely over the last few years 15, 20 years contemporized based on the needs of our global population and the needs of the patients. Well, I think that makes sense, but it, and I'm curious your thoughts on this. Um, so you had mentioned that when you got into the role, some of your coworkers, colleagues said, I just don't think we've moved the needle on this. I'm, I'm now paraphrasing, but, and you were kind of like, wow, that's kind of disappointing. But I thought about that when you said it and, and you're, you were just kind of talking about it there Hasn't diversity inclusion, maybe, and, I'm, and I don't know the answer to this, and I'm sure it's quite broad, but has it, um, is, have we maybe not made the strides because now it's so broad? It's not as it was, you know, it feels like years ago, it was like, okay, it's women's rights and that's where it's going to live. And that was diversity inclusion for a two or three year period. Now it's like, whoa, we have religion in here now. And your thoughts on, on politics, it's like, whoa, this thing really expanded which I think in some people, um, I know myself as a leader, I do question where where do I start? Is it is it like what are the gaps today? Where do we start? And how do I? It's, it's almost like business and trying to solve a customer problem. And, and maybe I'm making the wrong analysis, but 
you have to start somewhere and focus somewhere. And how do you how do you look at that? And what are your thoughts on that? And how does a company figure out? You know, there's so much to do. Where do you where do you start? Yeah, that is a question that many, many, many leaders, folks that are stepping into my role too, because if you remember, you kept hearing about companies having or starting or creating chief diversity officer roles, right? That's right. Um, and so that's, that is the question that Ron and everyone was asking. And the way that I started it when I got in this role eight years ago. Yeah, let's talk about the, the strategy there at Merck, yeah. I, I basically said, okay, well, let me just do an assessment of the organization and find out where the pain points are. So pain so, points being, so in this case, the pain point is where are we off? Where do we need more inclusion, diversity, et cetera? Where are we shy on this? Does that make sense? That's exactly okay. it. That's exactly it. And what did you do? Walk us through. How did you, where did you yeah, start? So with I worked with, um, from a number standpoint, work with our data analysts, our workforce data analytics team, and just did an analysis of what our representation was. You know, what percentage do we have women at the various different levels in the company? So senior executives, senior managers, managers, and, um, and non-people managers, individual contributors. And then I looked at, um, I did that globally. I looked at race, ethnicity, um, those statistics from a US perspective. I looked at, um, um, level, I looked at generations in the workplace. Um, I looked at our employee opinion survey and said, okay, what are people saying when it comes to how are they feeling engaged? Are they feeling included? Are they feeling empowered? And then not just looking at the information holistically, but I compared males and versus female answers and said, where are the gaps in, in how they're feeling around our culture, our, our leadership, our strategy, our inclusive behaviors, et cetera. I, I sorted it by race and ethnicity. And did anything the, jump out to you when you were going through this? Was oh like, yeah, yeah, there were, there were big gaps from the standpoint of you know, one community of employees feeling more engaged in, uh, than others. There was uh, a feeling that, um, women were feeling like they weren't, um, they didn't feel it was a, a safe environment to speak up. They felt like the culture was such that they didn't have a voice. Um, and that's the same was for, from a race and ethnicity standpoint. From a generational standpoint, um, you know, baby boomers, generation X, generation Y. We, at the time, we didn't have a lot of the newer generation in the workforce, but there was a different viewpoints from how they viewed um, where the organization was going, their thoughts around authority, um, their thoughts around um, did they feel that they were valued. Um, um, so there were different viewpoints from that standpoint. So I just looked at the information and said, where are the gaps? And in, in other words, where are those pain points in the organization? And, and so from a representation standpoint, from a um, where do we need to close those gaps? And, and so from a representation standpoint, we had to make sure that, okay, if we don't have what the percentage of women or the percentage of, you know, where does it break down? And so you look at your hiring practices, you look at your promotion practices, you look at your um, who's leaving the organization and see if there's some type of, um, analysis there. So 
I went to Carnegie Mellon University graduate school and it's known for its data analytics. And so I'm a, I'm a geek when it comes to data. And so, you know, you look at all that information so you can know where do I need to focus? But, but you know, let's say, and look, I'm just using an example. Let's say mm -hmm. you do the analysis and it's like, oh, wow, we only have 3% females in the workplace. Yep. Mm -hmm. Was there a best practice? That, like, and I don't know how this works, but is it like, well, you should have 30%, you know, was there, was there, a, was there a goalpost set that you worked towards or was it just like, look, we need to do a better job of this. And we need to have a commitment and look about why this is and how we change it. Or there was like, no, it's going to be, we're going to change it. This, this is the mark that we don't want to hit or it wasn't like that. Yeah. So in the U S um, we have the, the, um, Office of Federal Contract and Compliance Program, so the FC, OFCCP. We have the Equal Employment Operation Commission, so EEOC. So there are laws within the Department of Labor and the government that says that you have to have a certain representative representation of women um, and a certain representation of various different, uh, uh, they call it underrepresented ethnic groups, race and ethnicity, Black, Latino, Hispanic, um, uh, Pan-Asian community, Native American. And so, um, and so um, we, there are laws that basically say that. So you do, you've probably heard run affirmative action plans. Those are very much alive and real in the United States. And so we had to follow those affirmative action plans, which basically takes, takes an analysis that says, given the external labor market and given your internal feeder pool and internal population, um, you should have this percentage of women or this percentage of uh, Black and African-American and so on and so on. So yes, there were um, uh, we, uh, aspirational goals that you had to have in the United States. When it came to global markets for women, we would look at the, um, we just do the same calculation. What's the percentage in the labor market of women? What's our internal um, um feeder pool look like, and then calculate what the representation should look like. So it wasn't sort of a, you know, put your yeah. finger in the wind and yeah. say, we need to do that. But we did have specific analysis, which said, this is what your organization should look like. But that's the letter of the law. But we, the spirit of the law tells you that <clears throat> you should have a workforce that mirrors your patient in us for us, your patient base. And our patient base is extremely diverse, diverse across yeah. all dimensions right. of diversity. And so if you're gonna be able to make sure that you are um, um, reaching all patients, you should have a workforce that reflects that diversity in your patients. And that's kind of the spirit of the law. This episode of Scaling Culture is sponsored by Spoken. And speaking of scaling culture, how do you build culture and keep employees engaged when everyone is remote? Let's face it, no one has completely figured it out. That's why we got so excited when we heard about Spoken. Spoken is a podcasting platform for the workplace. They help companies like Udemy, Robinhood, and Snike tap into the popularity of podcasts to tackle their biggest people priority without adding one more Zoom call to the day. And Robinhood is using Spoken to create podcasts with company leaders to tell stories that are really tied to the company's values. We believe sharing stories are critical in driving home core values and bringing them to life in an organization as time goes on. Pretty cool, right? 
Listeners of our podcast can get two months free on their annual contract with Spoken. Head over to getspoken.com slash scaling culture. That's Spoken without the E. To learn about all the different ways podcasting on their platform can help transform your remote culture. Let's talk about integration of, Mm -hmm. you know, diversity inclusion. So does it start on, is there a tactic on the screening, i.e. the interview process, and then onboarding, and then reviewing. How do you integrate this complex? Because it is, is, I feel like it is complex into the business, you know, to, to you know, and I, I feel like in one level, it's complex, and the other level to me says, so, well, it's not. It's just about being empathetic, really listening, being compassionate. But, you know, I kind of go back and forth on those two things. Yeah, you, you know, it, it can appear to be overwhelming, but the way that I approach it with our with our strategy is I, I take it from the standpoint of um, our purpose as a company is to compel a more globally diverse and more inclusive workforce for our employees by creating an environment around them of belonging, of engagement, of equity and empowerment so that they can do their job, so that they, they can ensure that our patients experience ultimate health outcomes. That's basically what our purpose is. So, so if you think of it from the standpoint of that, that is our purpose around diversity and inclusion, we focus in four areas. Our people, that's basically, let's make sure that we have a representation that, that mirrors the communities we serve. Our culture, and that's that surrounding the people with that culture of inclusion so they can feel that they're bringing, they're, they can bring themselves to work. They don't have to be somebody else. Um, the third is our business, integrating DNI into our business. And I'll talk a little bit more about that. And then our world. We have an accountability, I feel, um, as a Fortune 500 company to not just do what we need to be doing within the four walls of our company, but also look outside and say, what can we learn from other companies? And then what also do we have responsibility to be role models with other organizations so together we can we can lock arms and just really increase the and transform the environment and the business landscape. And so your your question around the people aspect of it, you have to look at um, your, uh, how you're recruiting, where you're recruiting from, and um, those, we call them diversity sourcing strategies. So are you going and fishing from the same pond and thinking you're gonna get different types of fish? You have to go to different parts of, of different uh, different areas. And right. so, you know, going just to different, you know, from a university standpoint, going to historically black colleges and universities, as an example, going to universities and colleges that have a very diverse student population. Um, so we can so you make sure that you're, you're able to to get a variety of different dimensions of diversity in, when you're recruiting. That's just as an example. Um, but you have to go, go to different career fairs that maybe focus on veterans or focus on people that are, are disabled. Or So there's lots of different things that you can do and different um, organizations that you can partner with to go out and get the diverse candidates that you need in your business. You know, it's, it's interesting. Um, yeah. Because that fully makes sense. And I always think of like, you know, our own business and, and I think there's a big opportunity, even for me as a leader, you know, I think of, when I think of diversity inclusion, I've always thought of it as diverse thought, 
you know, so, so kind of like what we talked about earlier, Celeste, I, you know, to me, when I build my, you know, my, my, the business I'm involved with, I'm looking for people that think differently. So typically that, that does mean that people have different backgrounds. It could be religious, whatever it is, races, but I, I, I kind of, I don't want to say filter that out, but I just look at someone think differently because we need to have different thought. Uh, and, and of course, creating a very safe environment where they feel quite safe and they could, you know, raise their hand or, or, you know, for whatever that, you know, uh, collaborate. And I think we do a good job of that. Where I think the big opportunity for us is, is what you just said is we don't do a good job of going broad to market. We don't, we don't sit around in front of a whiteboard and say, okay, we're not just going to list this on the jobcenter.com, you know, it's, whoa, let's think about this for a sec. Where, where are, you know, where are different groups, where are different ethnicities, where, um, you know, where do people with very diverse backgrounds, because they probably don't go to jobs.com or where, you know, I'm just using that as a, um, as, as an example. And, and for us, I think that is the opportunity, you know, because, and, and, but, but is there something else I'm missing or does that make sense? You know, what else, you know, cause that's the how, or is there more things on, on the, maybe the interview process yourself that, that digs at that or, or not so much? No, no, absolutely. There, there's a fundamental part, and this is part of the, the second pillar of our strategy around creating the inclusive culture. There, that involves a lot of education, awareness building around what does it really mean to have an inclusive culture. And, and when I talk about that, having an inclusive culture does not mean that I have everybody is exactly the same. And I want to get everybody to the point where they are exactly the same. It's a point, it's it's basically how do I learn more, understand more, reach more from different cultures, backgrounds, experiences across the dimensions of diversity and be able to meet them where they are and engage in a conversation and a dialogue that makes them feel like they are valued within the organization for who they are, for the perspectives that they come in and their experience. And so let's just, I want to poke at that for one sec, because, yeah. mm -hmm. you know, we as humans judge people. We judge what you say. We judge what you wear. We judge, you know, it's just, it's, it feels like it's very natural. What's the one skill, maybe there's something you guys are, are, are training at, at uh, in the workplace, but what are you, uh, how are you guiding leaders in that moment of just before you judge, is it just get curious like, is it just flipped to curiosity? So you're not like, whoa, what did you say? Well, that's so silly. You know, what is, what are we doing in that moment of like, oh, what, what just happened here? Okay. Let me lean into this. Right. Well, years ago we started with, um, you, you heard a lot about unconscious bias education, right? right? And you know, that is just based on the premise of everyone has biases, everyone, regardless of who you are, what you, what's your background, however you identify. And so it's about understanding those biases, understanding what is the genesis of those biases, and then not just understanding them and being aware of them, which a lot of the training, early training on unconscious bias focused on. It's like, oh, well, I have biases. Okay, oh, that's great. That's really, you know, they took it as an intellectual exercise as opposed to turning unconscious bias to conscious action. And but, so, but how do you get to unconscious bias? How do you get to, I don't know what I don't know. What is there an exercise? That's a, I'm, Oh yeah. There, there's, right? Yeah. There's lots of training around it. And, okay. and it's, it's basically, um, you know, one of the things that was really simple in, in getting in touch with your blind spots. Um, 
there was an exercise in one of the training, one of the first trainings that I went to year, decades ago. And there was pictures that they were showing of, of people in, in different um, settings and everything. And this one I remember because it, it had to deal with uh, my home state of Pennsylvania. But they showed this guy, he had a bald head, a uh, big, big guy, a big white guy, um, sitting on a bike, a motorcycle, tattoos all over his arm and everything. And then the exercise is basically, they show the, they show the picture on the screen and they said, what's your first reaction of this picture? And you don't have time to think. You just basically say, hey, here's my first reaction. And my first reaction was, okay, it, it stems from my my dear mother. <laughs> she, she used to say when I was driving to, to uh, school, college, um, seven hours from Pennsylvania to the University of Kentucky, she used to say to me, don't stop at rest stops where there's a whole bunch of motorcycles. <laughs> That's funny. Good advice, so, actually. You know, just, again, another bias. But my first reaction was, I'm never going to stop at a, rent, uh, at a rest stop if I'm traveling and with this guy standing out there, right? And he just, you know, fear, all of these things came to mind. And it's, what is your initial thing? Don't think about it. What is your initial thought? Well, they do that exercise with a series of pictures, but that particular photo, that guy was the mayor of Scranton, Pennsylvania. <laughs> so a guy in public office who was just bringing his authentic self to work, that was him. And um, I'll never forget that, but they just showed a bunch of different pictures and they showed, you know, um, it, um, uh, just different things. And, and you, then we explored, well, why did you feel that way? Why did you think that that guy, why would you never approach that guy? Why would you, and then you start thinking about, well, yeah, you know, my mother did say blah, 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 blah. And well, why did she say that? What did you react to that? How did you think about it? So, you really start digging deep into your own biases based on your experiences right. and your background yeah, and your upbringing and who you yeah. hung out with as you were growing up and what your, your discussion was around the family meal. And, and so it's a, it's a very, um, as you can imagine for folks in my, in my industry, it is very challenging sometimes because you are in essence questioning what mom and dad told you, right? What your right. grandpa told you, what Aunt Betty told you in some cases. And then these, some of these are your learned experiences. Or your environment. You just haven't seen something before. Yes, exactly. If you had not, if you were raised in um, you know, upstate Connecticut or upstate New York and you're never around anyone who looks differently than you do, um, then when you are exposed to different people, the only um reference points you have, what you saw on TV, what you read in the paper, what you saw on the news. And, and so very biased, right? And so um, you come with those biases when you come into a different, uh, especially a diverse environment. And so totally. we, we, you have to get them in touch with that and understand it. But then you have to make sure that those biases do not cause you to make decisions about people that's going to put them in, and that's going to disadvantage them. So in other words, if I am interviewing a male and a female for a role, and, and this was, when I, when I started working, this was very heavily <clears throat> on some manager's mind across different companies I worked at. They would give the man the job because 
well, the man has, they're the breadwinner and they got to earn the money for the family and, um, you know, biases, right? And, you know, and then you fast forward to the 80s and the 90s and moms, you know, moms are working moms and working and that. And so, so, but people, some of that still claws in uh, to decisions that people are making about uh, human beings. Absolutely. And, and, you know, so, so you have to really get in touch with it. You have to understand it. And then you have to say, okay, well, how is this influencing how I'm making decisions around people in my organization? Hiring decisions, promotion decisions, termination decisions, performance evaluations, developmental discussions across the whole spectrum, the A to alpha to omega of, um, of employment. That's really interesting. And it was thinking about a point, you know, one, I, my wife's going to kill me, but I, when we went to, so I grew up, I'd say more on the wrong side of the tracks and she was behind a nice, beautiful white picket fence. And we went to Nicaragua years ago and you know, I've just, I backpacked in the mountains of Colombia. I'm, I'm good. This is feeling, I'm really like, I want to meet these people and buy fish in someone's house and maybe see if someone will invite us in for lunch. She's terrified. She's literally, and I'm like, what, what's going on with you? She thinks she's going to get robbed. Like it's just, she's never seen this before. And so, you know, very different environment for her. But I think, in, and as I was thinking about that situation, it feels like, um, because let's just say you have someone who we all have our biases and then, and then you get to this point of awareness and, and moving through those. And we'll probably never get rid of them all. And you move to the next level, next level, whatever it is, or the next layer. But I, I feel like in some places where this um, creates a wedge and please correct me if I'm wrong, uh, based on your experience is let's just say um, you and I are working together and I have a bias towards something, but I, it, it's, it's an unconscious bias. I didn't even know that I have this bias and you can see it. You see it. You see my blind spot, my bias, but then you kind of now get upset with me because of this bias I have versus being compassionate and trying to educate. And I feel like, I feel like that's happening a lot. Like I've, I've seen this a few times where it's, it's kind of like boom, 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 boom. People are kind of back and forth at this thing because whoever's seen it has an opportunity to help that person it probably wasn't a bad intention. It's you don't know what you don't know. My wife didn't have a bad intention when she was nervous. That wasn't, she wasn't like, you know, there was no bad intention. It was just, it, she was uneducated. She just didn't, she had not seen that before. So it was an, I'll call it a natural reaction maybe, right? For not having that type of insight. And my reaction to her was kind of like, well, like what, what's this? Like, you know, I probably reacted wrong to that. I, I then judged her for the way she was judging these people. I mean, I feel like that's a slippery slope. And, and as leaders, is that something that we need to just catch real quick and say, well, this is an opportunity versus like, whoa, 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 we are already like, I'm over here, you're over there. You know, I feel like there's a lot of that going on. Yeah, there's a lot of divisiveness and, and there's a lot of um, across the, the, the globe. And so, you know, it's, it's very interesting, Ron, in every country, I say there's the haves and the have nots, right? And, and there's, there's isms in it, whether that's classism, whether that's you know, sexism, wh whatever it is, the haves and the have nots. And so in the work environment, especially in the role that I have, we do have to bring people together to, for um, a similar purpose. And our purpose is to save and improve lives uh, in the workplace. 
what we face, and we're facing it more and more and more, and as I said, it's only going to increase, but what we're facing is historically those that have been um, the have-nots or in the minority. It's been expected of them to just sort of um, accept it and just keep your mouth closed, keep your head down, and just go with the flow. And that is basically, there, as I said, that employee awakening, that is not something that is even possible in this day and age. And so there has to be a, 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 a lots of things that are happening. So we, we're, we need to educate ourselves around different cultures, experiences, et cetera, that we are with of the people that we're working with. So step one is educate, let me educate myself. Read books, articles, Google, whatever Talk it is you need to do, right? And then um, to, have a, to have an understanding before you approach someone who's different from you and say, hey, you teach me. It's, it's your onus to teach me. It's you, your responsibility to bring me to, and, and educate me because I'm the mountain and I'm Muhammad and you're, you need to come to me. So there's that mindset too, you have to be very right. careful. Of. But again, assuming good intent across individuals, educating yourself and saying, okay, I wanna learn more. I just wanna be a sponge. I wanna basically understand. I wanna understand my, my own biases, my own blind spots. I wanna understand about people who are different from me. And then engaging in conversation and dialogue where each person is meeting them where they are. Sorry, Celeste, I didn't mean to cut uh -huh. you up, but just because I hear that a lot and I, and I should ask a question, what does meet them where they are? What does that mean to you and for the listeners out there, meet them where they are? Can you unpack that? I'll give you in a demonstration or an example. Um, during the Me Too, when that was um, at its height a few years back, um, I was having a conversation with a senior leader, senior male leader. And um, he said, you know, Celeste, he goes, I'm really, really scared. I'm scared that um, I, don't, I don't feel comfortable mentoring a woman anymore. I don't feel comfortable um, having, you know, that type of a dialogue or a relationship because, you know, of, the, of, the, of all of the, the false accusations. I'm afraid I'm going to get falsely accused of sexual harassment or something like that. And so I was telling this story to a colleague of mine and another male, and they said, oh, you should have just told him off. You should have just this and that and blah, blah, blah. And I said, no, no, no. Um, he would, that's not how, that's not how I was going to approach it because this was a cry for help. This was someone who was genuinely fearful, right? And right. I've known this guy for this leader for probably you know, 10, 15 years. And so um, I said to him, I said, well, why? I said, let's help me to understand what's your fear? Why are you fearing? And he said, well, all of the false accusations. And so I threw some data at him and I said, well, you know, of the, of the millions and millions of women who have been harassed in, in the hospitality industry and in the various retail, all the different industries, corporate America, whatever. There's probably about less than maybe 2% that are false accusations. So I wouldn't worry so much about that, but let's really have a conversation around. And I kind of I teased him a bit. I was like, well, well, where are you having your mentoring conversations in a hotel room? Like, you know, <laughs> you know what, what, what's going on here? And, but, um, but we, we had a conversation and a dialogue and it, 
and and it really it really helped him to understand and to not have that 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 genuine fear that he had because the bottom line is in my job letting that attacking that person and saying oh my god and doing what my colleague said you. you know screaming at me or whatever i just missed the moment to number one educate him but number two for women as you know women in their advancement in corporate america mentorship is crit a critical lever that you have to pull and so if guy if leaders senior male leaders are pulling away from mentoring women well it, it's a bigger bigger problem from that standpoint so I, I have to meet people where they are and in this case i met him where is where he was tried to understand what was going on in his head and then educate make him aware and bring them forward to say, I need you to be a, a mentor for women. You are a senior leader within this organization. Um, mentoring is a key component of our strategy to advance women in this company. If you are afraid to do it, then we have a problem with that aspect of our strategy. And so let me educate you and make sure that you understand. I find this interesting. So I was just making some notes. You know, if, if I had to create a process, it sounds like get curious, then educate, but then empower, like the last part of, hey, we need mentorship. I need, you know, it's not just educate, see you later. There was this from you. It was now let's get involved. Like this isn't just going to end with a little bit of education. You have to participate or, you know, I'm being a little aggressive now, but how do you empower the person to make the change themselves, right? It's, let me get curious. And, you know, you, you got to understand that that he really blanketed these false claims. You showed him from an education standpoint, the data being 2%, whatever it was, you know, that would probably, that's your education part. Um, and then empowered him and said, we really need this. This is very important. You know, you can't just give up and walk away. I mean, I thought that's a, it's a really unique process. It seems to make sense. Did I miss anything there? Or was, did we no, that's, that? a, that's a great way to categorize it. And, and really just, it's, it's, I can't afford in my role and I'm human too, right? I have my white knuckle moments where I just want to, you know, sit there and look at someone and say, "Oh my God, did that just happen, or did they, did they just say that?" But I, I have uh, the responsibility in my role as the head of global diversity and inclusion in this in this company to make sure that I am bringing people together. That's inclusion. That's taking disparate points of view. Taking getting people to have those uncomfortable conversations to get to a culture of inclusion where everyone feels belonged and valued. You don't get there with just niceties and, and um, passive aggressiveness and uh, aversion and not having those difficult conversations. You gotta have them because once you have them, then you get to a point where you respect each other and you may not agree. You can say, I respectfully disagree with your viewpoint, but um, at least you've had the conversation and you have an understanding of where the person is coming from. That's right. I disagree, but I understand where you're coming from. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And if we're focused up here about other things, we're, we're missing the point of the fact that our mission at this company is to save and improve lives. Right. And so if we're, if we're not able to connect from from some vantage point, the mission, the task at hand suffers and right. ultimately our patients suffer. Makes makes perfect sense. And, and Celeste, 
what keeps you up at night about this topic? What is kind of like, ah, when I'm up thinking about the challenges and what, what enters your mind? For me, um, I think when I look at the population, there's a certain percentage of folks who they're, they're um, serious about diversity and inclusion. I call them my diversity ambassadors. They're out there, they're making an impact. They're my change agents and catalysts in the organization. There's other percentage of the population that um, they believe in diversity and inclusion, but they're not actively in the boat rowing and helping us to get there, but they're benefiting from it. They're not getting in the way, but they're not actively engaging, right? Then there's that other percent that they don't believe in diversity and inclusion. They view it as a loss for them in the whole um, um, strategy. They feel that, um, that, that, that there's just a fear, a genuine fear of and hatred almost of, of otherness, right? Of people that are different from who they are. And my fear is that, and that's a small percent, it's not a large percent, but, um, and they're just not gonna engage in the strategy. And so one of the things that I, that, that keeps me up at night is there are people who, they don't understand the work that needs to be done in diversity, equity, and inclusion. You ever seen that, that illustration? Everybody's seen it, where there's three people, they're standing on a rock and they're looking over a fence or trying to. The first person can see over the fence clearly, the second person almost, and the per third person can't see at all, but they're all still standing on one rock. And then the second um, illustration shows the point that the one person still standing on that one rock, he could see over the fence. The middle person standing on two rocks, they can see over now. And that third person standing on three rocks, they can see over now. Um, as we do this work of equity, it's causing disruption in the workplace. And so what I mean by that, the, the acts of equity are putting those rocks underneath that second and third person so they can see over the fence. The fence represents all of the isms, the structural uh, isms, racism, sexism, homophobia, all, all of those uh, xenophobia, all of those different things that's structural, that the person who's always been able to see over the fence doesn't understand the isms. They don't understand because they've not experienced it. Um, they've been in the majority. They've been and you know, had a life of privilege. And so now the problem is, the challenge is, as we put those rocks in place in these actions of equity, programs for women, programs for persons of color, programs for various different um, uh, diverse populations. As we put those rocks in place, that person that's standing on the one rock but in the first frame and in the second illustration, second frame, they're looking and they're saying, well, how come they have two rocks and they have three rocks and I just have one? Because they don't recognize, acknowledge, understand the fence. And so to your point earlier, my, job is to get them, that first person who's asking all of those questions, and that's manifesting itself in the workplace in a lot of different ways. Um, some of them very, very negative um, but, and detrimental, but it is to get that person who's been standing on that one rock to understand that there's a fence there. They haven't always been able to see it because they've been always been able to see over it. Help them to understand the isms and why we have to put that second rock and that third rock over there while we're still tearing down that fence because the third illustration is nobody needs rocks the fence is down 
and I can see the beautiful mountains over in front of me. That's what kind of, what scares me is that we have to get that person standing on the rock to understand that. And there is that level of frustration by the person who needs three rocks and the person who needs two rocks because they, they don't, they don't take those questions as being helpful. The question of well, why do you have two rocks and why do you have three rocks? They take it as you got to be kidding me. We've had, you know, the, the African-American, we've had 400 years of oppression and you're asking me why I need these programs or why I need this or why, why I need that. You don't understand the inequity. So there is a level of frustration that's happening across the, all of those pop, those three persons represented across various different communities. And so how do I bring the conversation together so we truly can tear down the fence? We don't need the rocks and we can see the mountains. That's where I ultimately want to get. I look, I think that's beautiful. And and but I wonder if there's another piece piece of symbolism about the rocks, right? Because those are people that we have to put in the programs, help educate. There's work, you know, and wonder if there is symbolism in one, two, three rocks, so that person can see over. So that you have to stop and get the rocks, put them there. They're heavy, like that's work, right? And it's, it's to your point, you have to stop and do some work. You can't just do your job. You're, you're going to have to implement sometimes some focus to grab these rocks, which I saw in your story as crutches, right? To help people see, uh, see in a different way. Well, yeah. well, look, that's wonderful. Celeste, I wanted to talk before you run uh, about a book that you have coming out. And I think it's coming out in the summer. Tell us about it. Yeah, I'm really, really excited. This is my first um, first book. And Congratulations. Um, I, I never I never thought that I would be someone who would be an author because I, I frankly thought, who cares what I have to say? <laughs> but but um, um, the book is called How to Be a Diversity and Inclusion Ambassador, Everyone's Role in Helping All Feel Accepted, Engaged, and Valued. And it is basically... Um, sort of my how-to book for how individuals, regardless of where they sit in the organization, they, they have a role to play in, um, in order for the, the organization to really be that inclusive culture that we all want to see and that we all want to work in. So it really just um, um, allows everyone from different vantage points to understand what they need to do. And so I'm really excited about it. Um, um, I, I, it is a labor of love <laughs> and, um, and just part of my pandemic, um, sheltering was, and pretty much, the um, uh, just energy for me was the, to, to write this book, put my thoughts down and, and arrange them in a way where I think it'll be helpful for everybody. Cause a lot of people, they say, well, I'm not a manager. I, I don't hire people. How can I do anything? What can I do? And um, we have to make sure that everybody understands the role they play in order for there to be true change within uh, organizations. Absolutely. It's beyond leaders. And I'll say, I'm really happy that you got past that self-bias of thinking nobody wanted to hear what you have to say, because I certainly love hearing what you have to say. And I know our listeners will too. And so that's great. And, and thank you for, um, for your wisdom and your knowledge. I've learned a ton of two pages of notes here and, and things that we need to think further about ourselves. And so not not just thanks from from me and my team, but but our our listeners as well. So that's been a great episode. Thank you for your time and keep doing your work. And I really look forward to reading your book. 
Thank you so much, Ron. Thanks for having me. It's been great. For more information about Celeste and her new book, please follow her on LinkedIn. To learn more or purchase the Scale and Culture Masterclass online, please go to scaleandculture.org. And if you're enjoying the Scale and Culture podcast, please subscribe and share. We'll be back soon with another incredible guest.